Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, My name is Steve. I am one of the leaders here, and we're continuing our series called Real Life. We're going through the Psalms and taking a look at how some real guys um, dealt with some real struggles and did it in a way that they actually came out on the other side um, with a stronger faith, a real faith, um, instead of just kind of faking it and and white-knuckling it. And so we're unpacking it to try and figure out how, how we can take the principles that we see in the Psalms and apply them to our lives. Because the culture is different, the time is different, but the human struggle is the same. And the stuff that they're talking about in these Psalms is the same exact stuff we deal with on a daily basis. The Psalm this morning is a Psalm of Asaph. Um, and Asaph is writing this Psalm in response to a period in his spiritual walk where he was tempted to basically just walk away. He was tempted to just say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done following God. I am done 
with this whole God thing, I am done. And um, the reality is most of us have had those moments. <laughs> if you're a follower of Christ and you haven't had one of those moments yet, you probably will. Um, that's kind of the nature. There are times when we just get into a crisis, when we look even at the, our, our faith itself and, and um, the source of the faith that, that is supposed to be the source of strength and of encouragement is nothing. I mean, it's not only not encouraging and not giving us strength, but it itself seems to be difficult to maintain. That's where Asaph finds himself. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a summary statement. A lot of times the psalmist will begin with a summary statement. That honestly is a statement of his heart where he is now. When he considers his relationship with God now, he's like he's in a good spot. But verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. When I was a kid, we, we lived in Northern California, and my brother used to take me to this swimming hole. And um, in order to get there, you kind of had to cut through the woods and, and go through these trail lines, and, and there was a rope swing. It was awesome. But there was one section on the trail that used to terrify me. I don't remember how old I was. In fact, I don't remember much except for this very specific section of the trail, because every step you would take, you would feel your foot sliding out, right? You're on this hillside, it's gravelly, it's rocky, and it is steep, and it goes down to a drop-off. And so I'm walking through this section just terrified. I'm pretty sure there was probably a different way to get to the rope swing. My brother just liked to watch me um, walk in terror. And, and, and so he, that's the way we would go every single time. And while I'm on this hillside, right, I'm, I'm thinking... I'm in danger, right? I mean, who likes to have their foot slip? You know, like I've seen video of guys on top of Mount Everest. They're walking right along the peak, and, and all of a sudden you see their foot slide down the edge, and they just keep right on going. But you know in your heart, holy cow, that guy probably had the biggest pump of adrenaline in the world right there. I mean, he's looking at 35,000 feet, you know, plummet. I mean, just horrific. I mean, take a look at these guys. These are sheep. The top image there is of a dam. They're, they're actually goats. It's a dam. I mean, they're, they're hundreds of feet in the air. And these, these goats love to lick the salt off the rocks. And, and, you know, their feet are designed to be able to grab and grip. And so there's no fear, right? Until they slip. Holy cow, can you, you... They're standing in these tiny, tiny little things, right? And they're like, yeah, this is totally normal, right? And they're just... And then, I mean, that's how I felt, right? I'm on this hillside. I'm looking at... It's probably about a 12-foot slide to a 4-foot drop-off. That's probably what I'm looking at. But in that moment, that's what it feels like. I'm... I'm going to die. Do, you know what, when I'm driving home, you know that feeling when your foot starts to slip? That's not a pleasant feeling. That feeling when you're just kind of going along and all of a sudden you feel your foot going out underneath you and you know it's not going to be good, right? When, when that moment, that moment when you start to stumble <laughs> and it dawns on you, you're going down, right? And it's not going to be pretty. In that moment, you're filled with adrenaline. In that moment, like, like you weren't even thinking about walking. You weren't even thinking about slipping. But as soon as that slip begins, something triggers in you and you know you're in danger. Asaph was going along in his spiritual life. He was going along in his walk with God. And suddenly something triggers. And he realizes he's in crisis. He realizes in that moment that he may fall, like just completely fall away from his faith, from, from his hope in God. And, and I think most of us have had those moments. Most of us have had those, those times where um, things are not going well. 
And that triggers in us this sudden fear, this sudden doubt. And how we respond to that is huge. Take a look and see what actually triggered it for Asaph. If you take a look in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What, what triggered Asaph's crisis of faith? What triggered Asaph's crisis of faith is he saw people that were doing incredibly well that he didn't think should be. That he looked at these guys, and their lives were just good, and his wasn't, Right? He's like doing his best to obey God. He's doing his best trying to walk with God. He's trying to, he's doing all the right things. He's in the right places. He's doing all the moral codes. He's, he's doing all the right stuff, right? But his road seems to be full of potholes, right? He just, he's hitting all these things and they're, they're just like messing up the alignment of his life, man. Every time he hits one of these potholes, it hurts, it jars. And he's looking over there at these other guys and he's like, you guys, <laughs> you're arrogant. You are wicked, but your highway seems to be incredibly smooth. You're not hitting the potholes I'm hitting, right? In this moment, Asaph doubts. What's triggering this is Asaph doubts that God's going to tell a better life for his, a better story for his life than he would tell for his own. He's looking at these guys over here that are, that are doing all the things that God said not to do, and yet everything seems to be going so well in their lives. And he looks at that and he's like, what's the deal? Why... Why does it seem like they have all the blessing of God and I don't? In fact, he goes on and he describes these guys in, in this next section. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He's looking at him and he's like, you guys just don't have the hurts that I have, right? Verse 5, there are no troubles. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Um, these guys, man, they have the life. He's looking at him going, you guys are doing all the wrong things, living for all the wrong reasons, um, and, and you seem to have the life. I mean, there's no, there's no pangs in your, until death. I mean, you, you, there's no suffering. Your bodies are fat and sleek. Now, to us, that, that, that image doesn't really convey um, the same thing it would have to the Hebrew reader. We think about that, and we're like, yeah, that doesn't sound great. Think instead about, like, the Olympic swim team, all right? Thin and sleek, all right? All muscled out and sleek. Fat in that culture, what that meant was you had so much you had extra. You had not just enough to eat every day, you had enough to eat all the time, right? And, and so in that culture, when they said someone was fat and sleek, what they were saying was, this guy's incredibly prosperous. This is a guy that's not doing anything right, and yet he's getting everything I want. That's what he's saying, right? He's not stricken like the rest of mankind. They, they wear their pride like a necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. These are guys that, that aren't just like mildly out of line. These are guys that are publicly walking in defiance to all that God is telling them to do, all that God has designed them to be. They wear it like a necklace. They wear it like a garment, right? It's public. I mean, they're, they are, they're looking at their short-term success. In other words, I have walked in rebellion. I have done evil things. I am not doing the right thing, and yet I'm getting success. And since I'm getting success, that proves I'm wise. That proves I'm doing the right thing. They take their short-term success to be proof of their long-term wisdom. And so they just flaunt it. They just wear it. I mean, you may work with guys like this. Some of you may be in workplaces where you're trying to obey the rules and do the right thing. And there are other guys that are constantly cutting corners and, and cheating or lying. And yet they seem to be the ones that keep getting the promotions. And they even start bragging about it. 
I mean, they wear it like a necklace. They wear it like a garment. It's just out there. They're in school. You're struggling to, to actually learn your material, and they're cheating in every class, and yet they're the ones that keep getting uh, recognized in the accolades, right? Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies, right? These guys aren't just fat. These guys aren't just prosperous. I mean, their eyes are swelling out. They're so fat. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this, do you think this is reality? Do you think these guys were so fat that they could barely open their eyes? Seriously, do you really think that's what's going on? I don't think so. But I think that's the way Asaph sees them. Since Asaph is jealous, since he has envy, he sees their success and it's not his. He sees their life, and it's not his. He sees them getting advancements, and it's not the advancement he wants for himself. He starts distorting his image of them. He's just venting here and letting us know what's in his heart. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They, they abuse people, and they do it. They, they have no need to, to to try and get people to like them or to play by the rules, right? They just, they, they will oppress people, they will abuse people, they will get ahead. They're jerks, right? Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. They're not just arrogant toward people, they're arrogant toward God. They'll flaunt it. I mean, their mouths are set against the heavens. In other words, they, they have no fear of, 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 of the presence or the person of God. Their tongues strut through the streets. This is this, this image of... of um, it's absurd, but it's this image of they're, they're just so bold, right? That, that even in the sight of God, they, they, they boast, right? Verse 10, therefore, as people turn back to them, they find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? How, is there knowledge in the Most High? They look at their, how, how can God know? This is a culture, by the way, I'm going to throw it out there. This is a culture that, by and large, they were theists. They believed in God. You're talking about people here that, that it's not like they doubted the existence of God and, and were walking in the integrity of trying to find answers. These were people that believed in God, but had rejected Him and were in fact op- walking in open defiance to Him. It wasn't like they were saying, I don't believe God exists. What they're saying is God's obviously powerless because He's not here. Look at the success of my life. Look at everything's going well in my life, um, and, and yet I'm doing the wrong things. How, how can God know? He's obviously not here. How's their knowledge with the Most High? If he's interested, he's clearly not uh, uh, too interested because he's not intervening. They take their short-term success as evidence of long-term wisdom, and they continue walking in that. All right, what you need to catch as you, as you listen to this, do, do, you, do you catch that there is a little bit of truth and a whole lot of, of perspective involved here? Asaph is describing them as he sees them. Do you really think they never have any suffering in their life? Really? No. I mean, that's, we know people, even if they look like they're a success on the outside, they're suffering somewhere in their life. But Asaph's like, they have no suffering at all. They have no pain in their life at all. They, they, everything works for them. They come out on a cold day, their car's already warm, right? They go to work and, and coffee's sitting on their desk. I mean, everything just comes together for them, right? It's not real, but it's his perception. And his perception is driven by his envy, by his envy. So what ends up happening is that he fills his vision with that envy and it distorts his view of them. It magnifies their success. 
Like if you were to ask them, they probably wouldn't describe themselves the same way Asaph does. It magnifies his suffering. When he looks at his suffering in comparison to them, it's way worse, right? He just gets filled with self-pity because of his envy of them, because he's jealous of them. He just grows in in self-pity and ultimately disappointment. You got, we do this. We do this on a regular basis. Um, you ever just get annoyed with somebody for their success? You ever get ticked because something went well in somebody's life? And I come to you and I'm like, hey, why are you jealous of them? I'm not jealous of them. I just don't like them. Yeah, liar. You are so jealous. Why, are you, why would it make you angry that they have success unless you were envious? What envy means is that you want what they have and you're angry they have it and you don't. You think you deserve it and they don't. When we're in that place, we invariably magnify the success of others. It looks way better than it actually is. We magnify our suffering in comparison to it. We start envisioning ourselves as being way worse off than we actually are. And in that place, we will start magnifying their weaknesses so we feel self-justified in judging them. We will magnify everything that is wrong about them, everything that is stupid about them, everything that doesn't measure up about them, and that we will feel self-satisfied in judging them in our hearts and honestly hating them because they have the life we think we deserve. They have the blessing we think we've earned. They have the story that we think God should have given us. And it's a, it's, a, it's a distortion. It's not reality. A little bit of truth, a little bit of truth, nursed along and distorted by the, by the, the lens of envy that we, that we put on it. And, and, and you know what ends up happening, you guys? You don't just one day just wake up with this incredible case of envy. It's not like this thing that just suddenly comes on you like, like, stomach flu. You know, like you just wake up one day and you're just knocked sideways with it. You foster this stuff. You make little choices, little choices that, that nurture a perspective of envy. What do I mean by that? Well, where are you tempted to be envious? It's that colleague at work that you're kind of in competition with, or that colleague at school that you're kind of in competition with. And, and, and w- one day, like at work, you come in and, and you notice, you know, they're their cubicle's a little bit bigger than mine. And, and it's closer to the bathroom. I, you know. And the next day, you see them park. Their parking spot's closer to the door. You know? And, and then, then you start wondering, I wonder if they get paid more than I do. I wonder if they get a bigger bonus than I do. So you start, like every time, all of a sudden, you're like really paying attention. You're like trying to find out. Like, you're kind of getting obsessed. You're sick. Are you catching this? But it's these tiny little choices, tiny little choices all along the way that feed this sense of envy until one day you realize, holy cow, I mean, it just explodes and you're filled with anger, right? You're filled with resentment. Every time their name is mentioned, you just get bile in your stomach, right? It's like this thing that attacks you. It didn't attack you. You nurtured it. You babied it. You grew it, right? could be your boss. You ever had a boss that you look at him and you're like, you're the biggest idiot in the world? You don't deserve to have a position over me, right? I've done that, right? You're like, you are so incompetent. How could anybody? 
And so you, you get this, this subtle, like, you kind of submit when you have to sort of a deal. You do the things to keep your job, but you don't do the things that make him look good, right? And in fact, you kind of like it when he gets balled out. You kind of like it when he gets in trouble, right? What is that? What is that? It's, it's envy. It's envy, right? It could be that friend. You like the air quotes? Yeah, that friend, right? It's somebody that is our friend, but for whatever reason, we've suddenly found ourselves in competition with them. They, if they get more credit than we do, we start feeling that. That hurts. If, if people notice them more, if, if somehow we start thinking they're better looking or smarter or, 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 or gaining better traction in certain circles, we start feeling that. And, and we, we, that's, that's envy, right? Some of you, it's, it's not just personal relationships. It's your things, right? We envy the things of others, right? Some of you, you, you spend time trolling Craigslist, right? You're constantly, what are you doing? Why, why do you need to look at every guitar that's for sale on Craigslist? Why? Because it's better than mine, okay? Why do you need to look at every car that's because I'm not satisfied with the car I have? Why do you need to? So you're feeding this sense, right? Pretty soon, guys, you know it. You, you're just, you look at your car and you're like, oh, it's so ugly. That thing's so boxy. That thing's so old. That thing's so... We forget the fact that cars are, in fact, transportation, right? What's the purpose of a car? To look sexy? No. Purpose of a car is to get you from point A to point B. You know what I'm saying? When you're in the car driving from point A to point B, does it really matter if people on the street are going, oh, sexy, you know? They're not looking at you anyway. They're looking at the metal that surrounds you. I mean, seriously. Now, I get it. I like cars. I'm a car guy. I like cars. But we feed this sense of dissatisfaction, this sense of, and pretty soon we start noticing who has better cars than us. And pretty soon we start judging whether or not they're actually worthy to have a better car than us. Who are you to have a better car than me? Who are you to have more access? Who are you to have more freedom? Who are you to have more accolades? Do you see how it goes? We do this, you guys. We do this. Some of you pay very close attention. You want to know how much people make. You always want to know how much people make. You're just measuring yourself. Who are you to make more money than me, right? Women's magazines? <laughs> Those things are published simply to increase dissatisfaction in life. That's it. That's the only purpose of a woman's magazine, right? You go through the, the checkout line. you got these beautiful women. It's a different beautiful woman on the cover of the magazine every single month. They're all Photoshopped. They're not beautiful enough in real life right? We have, to, we have to tweak them because our, our sense of beauty is so twisted, right? And, and, and what do we do? We look, oh, yeah, man, I wish I looked like that. Oh, look at her. She's so beautiful. I'm not like that. Oh, look at her. I wish, oh, I can't wear that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so pretty soon you're like, that was great. I feel so horrible about myself. You know, it's like the purpose of looking at these things is simply to drag yourself into the mud. But we love it. Why? We, we are a culture of envy. We're a culture that is constantly looking at what other people have, who they are, and constantly greedy for the story that we project on them for their lives and distorting our vision of our own. Some of you do Pinterest. Some of you are getting nervous now, right? Because I know some of you are my friends on Facebook, and I know how much you do Pinterest because every time you pin something, it comes up on my timeline, right? So I'm like, like, holy cow, how much time do you spend on Pinterest, right? Now, Pinterest is kind of cool. Where else are you going to find such funny stuff? I mean, some of those little things are really hilarious. I get it, right? But I think a lot of times, how much, and I'm not saying Pinterest is bad, but you ask yourself, how much time do I spend on Pinterest actually pinning things that make me more discontent with my own life? I wish I had that. I wish I looked like that. I wish I could do that. You guys, we feed our dissatisfaction in life continually by filling our vision 
with who we're not, what we don't have. And we start creating stories about other people's lives where we magnify their story, we feel pity for ours, and we feel justified in hating them in the end. So how do we deal with this? How did Asaph deal with it? Well, Psalm thir- uh, uh, this psalm is a, a powerful insight into how Asaph himself dealt with this. I mean, this became in his life more than just a grumbling dissatisfaction. It became a crisis of faith. He's looking at these guys going, holy cow, they have the life I think God should have given me. If God's blessing them and not me, maybe God's not even around, right? Maybe he's not even part of my story because I'm not liking the story he's telling for me. And I would much rather choose this guy's over here. So how do we deal with this? All right. Obviously, Asaph found something better. So we need to see how he did that. Take a look at verse 15. If I had said... We'll go back to verse 13. All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. That was his perspective of himself, right? I've done all the right things. I've tried to obey God. I've tried to honor. I've tried. And, and these guys are getting blessed and I'm not. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus. What does he mean by that? Because obviously he's already speaking thus. He's already saying that. He's already saying their life is better than mine. Well, he's actually going back to verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? I want you to see something. He's actually tempted to do the very thing he condemns in them. He's tempted to basically say, God is not part of my story. See, they feel justified in, in rebelling against God because they look at their short-term success as evidence of long-term wisdom. And they say, since God is obviously not punishing me in the moment, then, then clearly I am making wise decisions. God's not interested. God's not around. Asaph is tempted to do the very thing he accuses them of doing. He is tempted to say to God, you are not around. You are not interested in my story. In vain have I tried to follow you. In vain have I tried to discipline my heart to become the person you said I should be, right? If I had said this, look at verse 15, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now that actually caught me off guard as I was sitting in this passage and studying this. That wasn't the conclusion I expected to see there because basically what he's saying is this. His foot started to slip but what caught it? What in the middle of the slide gave him enough grip to actually stop and get his bearings? It was actually community. The first thing in the middle of the crisis that gave him a little bit of grip that allowed him to, to orient himself and start clearing his head was that he had the right people around him. He had community. How, how can I betray my brothers? How can I, how can I betray my family, walk away. Here's the deal, you guys. Isolation um, is deadly. It's incredibly popular in our culture. We think of our faith as personal and private. And it is both of those in some ways because it's personal. It's my faith. It's not yours. It's private in the sense that, that as I work it out in my life, in many ways, that's a very hidden thing. But, but when I say my faith is personal and private, that is not an all-encompassing description because the reality is God didn't save us to simply be individual followers of Christ. He called us to actually be part of a body. That's the metaphor that's used throughout the New Testament, and it's called the church. And you're like, yeah, but I know the church, man. It's messed up. It's full of broken idiots or people there that are just mean and selfish. I know, you'll fit right in, right? Welcome to the club. That's really what's going on. If you haven't been hurt by people in the church yet, stick around. 
because it's going to happen. You know why? Because the church is a bunch, bunch of broken, messed up people being changed by God through the power of God to become like the Son of God. They have a glorious future. They have a messed up present. They're all going in the same direction, but it's going to be difficult on the path. We are called to be on that path together because God actually uses community to help us grow. God will do things in our lives through the messed up church that He won't do any other way. When we isolate ourselves and pull ourselves away from community, when church becomes a place to go instead of a people to be part of, when we allow our hearts to become judgmental and separate, right? When we think, man, they're idiots, right? And and pridefully, what we're saying is, I'm not. When we let ourselves go to that place where we isolate ourselves, we are incredibly um, endangered. Because when our foot starts to slip, there will be nobody there to grab our hand. Community is incredibly important for the vibrancy of our faith. God will use the church to do incredibly good things in your life, right? It's like a a bunch of rocks that that are just broken and scarred and jagged and, and, and you put them into a tumbler and you tumble that thing and those rocks hit together and that's not the most pleasant of experiences, but what it does is it knocks off the jagged edges. It smooths you out. God uses that to actually change you in good ways. And, and specifically, the benefit Asaph's pointing out here is that when he found himself in a crisis, he had people around him that loved him. He had people around him that would reach out and grab him and keep him from sliding into self-destruction. Community is incredibly important. And that's more, again, than just going to a place. It's moving into relationship with people that are going to encourage your faith, that are going to call you out when you need to be called out. They're going to strengthen you, right? These are people that ultimately care about you and that care about your relationship with God. Asaph had that around him, and that allowed him to catch his footing. Community is enough to temporarily stop the slide. It's not enough to keep you from sliding. Community is never a good enough excuse to stay in the church. Some people love the community of God. They just don't love God. They're not going to stick around. It's going to be too hard. It's going to be too ugly. It's going to be too difficult. Here's the thing. You not only need to have a love for community, you need to somehow move back into a greater love for God. You need a realignment of your faith. Take a look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, catch this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. One of the reasons I love the Psalms is that they are just brutally honest. What he's saying is, I was in a crisis of faith, and in that crisis of faith, there was community around me that kept me sliding, and I kind of knew what I needed to do to deal with it, but I didn't want to. You ever been in that spot where you know the right thing to do? You know what you need to do to actually feed your faith and grow, but you're just so freaking tired, you don't want to do it. It's like, it's a wearisome task. It's difficult. You guys catch this. It's going to be a struggle. You need to know that up front. You need to know that up front. Think about it this way. Delight is what we're talking about. And delight, delight is, is, is like a hill. Um, when you're going down a hill, it takes less effort to move, Right? You expend less effort. You can walk faster. You can walk farther. You can, you can run more quickly, right? And when you're going downhill, it seems to always take everything to a specific point. Delight is like that, right? I mean, think about it. Water has no legs, and yet it can run. Why? Because of the momentum that a hillside gives it. Delight is like that. What it does is that it actually increases 
our effort. We, we have to work less hard to get the same results. When you delight in something, you know this. When you love something, it ta- you don't have to sacrifice, right? Some people love fishing. They get up at 4 a.m. to drive to the lake. I hate getting up at 4 a.m. There have been a few times in my life where I'm like, I want to go fishing. Getting up at 4 a.m. suddenly wasn't that burdensome because I knew I was going to be out floating on the lake all day. That just sounded incredibly attractive to me, right? Delight actually decreases the suffering. And it always takes you to a specific place. Whatever you delight in tends to draw you. You end up moving toward the thing you delight in. You are driven by it and you are drawn to it. That's the power of delight in our lives. And the problem with Asaph and the problem with us is that we delight in the wrong things. We set our delight on things that are moving us away from God's blessing and not toward God's blessing. That's what Asaph did at the beginning of the psalm as he was building up this story in his head about how great those guys have it, how bad I have it, and, and, and filling himself with self-pity and, and, and anger and resentment. What he was doing was, in a sense, tilting his heart toward a new delight. What was his delight? His delight was the story he wanted to tell for himself, not the story God would tell for him. I want to be the guy so fat I can't open my eyes. I want to be sleek. I want to be the guy with all that prosperity. I want to be the guy that has a highway with no potholes. That's what I want. And he sets his delight on it. And so everything in him naturally runs to what he delights in. The difficulty is that we need to realign our delights, which is why sometimes following God feels like walking uphill. Every every step actually takes more effort than it should. Every attempt we make actually increases, increases the suffering. Why? Because realigning the delights of our heart is not an easy task. And honestly, it's an impossible task without the help of God. So you guys need to catch this. Asaph's crisis, when we look at the beginning of the psalm, Asaph's crisis wasn't about how well those people were doing. It wasn't an issue of justice. It wasn't an issue of promotions or accolades or recognition. It wasn't about success. It was a crisis of affection. He was allowing, subtly allowing his heart to tilt in the wrong direction, his his delight to be shifted to the wrong thing. And it was increasing the suffering in his life. And in this moment where God wakes him up by grace and speaks to him through community, and calls him to recenter his heart, Asaph admits the truth. It's going to be hard. You guys, what we're really talking about, I want you to catch this, is in the end an issue of worship. We were all designed by God to worship. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that we were designed to continually pour our hearts out to something or someone, continually. And we do that with the expectation that they're going to give to us what we need. We're constantly looking to people or things to do for us what only God can do or to be for us what only God can be. And they can't, which is why we live such desperately disappointed lives. Because we are focusing our delight on things that ultimately can't pay back the delight that we need. That's idolatry. We're looking to things that aren't God to be God. It's an issue of worship because worship, here's the deal, you worship what you delight in and your delight drives your worship. You want to know what you worship in your life right now? Let me ask you something. Where's your stream flow? Where does your delight naturally take you? You follow that path, and I guarantee you'll find what you're you're worshiping, or at least one of the things that you're worshiping in your life. 
And more than likely, for most of us, in fact, all of us, you follow all those paths, you're going to find plenty of idols, plenty of things that aren't God, that you are looking to, to give you what only God can give you, to pay back the pouring out of your life, of your affections, of your hope. And they can't because they're not God. And they can't meet your deepest needs. And they can't meet you where you are. And they can't change you the way you need to be changed. And so they leave you destitute. Now, the problem with idolatry is a lot of times, and that's what happened with Asaph, is he's pursuing the wrong path and he ends up blaming God in the middle of it. My needs aren't being met. God, where are you? Right? Asaph seemed to be operating under the subtle impression that God wants us to be successful. And here's what you need to catch. God's probably not that concerned with your success. Definitely not as concerned as you are. God's not as concerned about your success as He is about making you the person He's called you to be. Here's the, with God, faithfulness is more important than success. A lot of times you think, if I can just be successful, then I'll have it. If I can just attain this measure, then I'll have it. If I can just do this good thing, then God will love me. If I can just do this good thing, then I'll measure up. Success isn't the point. Faithfulness is. The question isn't how can you be successful in your current trial. The question is how can you be faithful in your current trial? That changes the, the playing field. You put that question to Asaph at the beginning of the psalm, and he's not going to see what he saw. At the beginning of the psalm, what he saw was people getting success when he thought he deserved it. And that created a crisis of faith. Why? Because he saw success as the measure of success when really it was faithfulness. Faithfulness is the measure of success. We need to be careful that we are um, moving in and fighting the right fight, fighting for joy. How do we do that? Because I can't change my emotions. If I find myself delighting in the wrong thing, how do I shift that? How do I deal with that? Here's the deal. You can't change your heart. You can't change your emotional response to things, but you can change what you focus on. You can change the focus of your eyes because what fills your vision commands your soul. And you can change what fills your vision, right? If you take a look at verse 17, go back to verse 16 for context. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a worrisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. And then I kind of woke up and then I started seeing things clearly. And then I actually saw that, that I was the problem, that it wasn't God and it wasn't my situation. I actually started seeing things the way they actually are until I went into the sanctuary of God. I, I came to my senses. I started seeing things as they really are. It was an issue of worship. It was an issue of delight. And coming into the sanctuary was what, in fact, he needed to do to realign his affections, to realign the part of him that was delighting in the wrong thing. How do we do that? For him, he was specifically talking about going into the sanctuary. <laughs> we would go into the temple where there was the reading of God's Word. We obviously are blessed with actually having the Bible. I mean, plenty of them, right? The Bible is designed to ultimately renew our delight in God. Right? We, we know this isn't like rocket science. How, how do you renew your delight in God? You go to the things that point you to God, the Word of God and prayer. Now, here's the challenge, you guys. There are wrong ways to do that. There are wrong ways to do that because sometimes we're not digging to the root of the problem. We don't really want to dig up the root of the problem. We simply want to trim the hedge, 
right? I'm just satisfied. I'm just content. I'm filled with envy. I'm finding myself irritable and angry. I'm really ticked at so-and-so every time I hear their voice. God, I want this taken away. Trim the hedge, which basically means I want to get rid of the envy, but I don't really want to renew my affections for God. The problem, the root of the problem is that we're delighting in the wrong thing. The way we shift that sometimes is by trying to deal with the emotional baggage of it without actually dealing with the central problem. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous. Let me, let me give you an illustration. I, there's a preacher that I, sometimes I listen to, and, and she's a brilliant storyteller. She is a brilliant, um, she just says things in powerful ways. And I love to listen to her because she's engaging. And I also learn a little bit about the craft of communication. I'm not a big fan of her theology. Um, sometimes she says things, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you said that incredibly well, but that was the dumbest thing to say. Um, and, and here's an illustration, because she's actually talking about, she's preaching on how to help people deal with envy. And she used herself as an illustration as a preacher. She said, I get filled with envy because I've seen other churches get bigger offerings than me. <laughs> Specifically, she said, I got to the point where I wanted to have a million-dollar offering. And I kept seeing so-and-so get a million-dollar offering, and then so-and-so get a million-dollar offering. And so pretty soon, I'm just sitting back, and I'm judging so-and-so, and I'm mad at so-and-so, and I'm envious of so-and-so, because they're all, they're all getting their million-dollar offerings. And, 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 and I'm just being filled with discontent, until I realized that what I needed to do was stop looking at us as a crowd competing for the blessing of God and see ourselves as people in a line. So that every time somebody gets a million-dollar offering, I can celebrate for them because I get to take a step forward. I'm one step closer. Right, that is horrible advice. Great illustration. Horrible point. Why? Does it do anything to realign your affections away from your greed and towards your delight in God? Does it go to the root of the issue that you are, in fact, defining success in the wrong way? That God might, in fact, want to bless you with no money? Because he wants to change you in some incredibly wonderful way that can only happen through that struggle? Does it do anything to increase your trust in God? Or does it simply get you free from the emotional baggage of judging others? It trims the hedge. It doesn't dig up the root. Yes, catch what I'm saying. A lot of times, we're going to be much happier just trying to find some place of emotional catharsis where we feel good about ourselves and we stop feeling bad about others. But if we're not, in fact, getting to the root of realigning our heart's worship, we're simply shifting the problem somewhere else. It's going to continue to resurface. The question isn't, am I a happy guy who's easy to get along with? The question isn't, am I happy with my life and, and non-judgmental of others? The question of my life is, do I delight in God? Because if I don't, that dissatisfaction will continue to creep back in. Because I'll continue to look to things that aren't God to be God. I'll continue looking to things that can't be to me what only God can be. And my life will become tedious and disappointing. Even if I'm happy and cheerful and not judgmental on the outside. We need to get to the root. The Word of God is our pathway to do that. Not as a, not as a tool, but as an invitation. What do I mean by that? Some of you guys approach the Bible as this thing to be mastered. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're like systematic theology guys, right? You, you just like, you like, you want to talk about um, not just imputation, but you want to talk about the modality of imputation. That's great. I'm glad you do, right? The problem is the Bible, systematic theology can become the worst thing in the Bible. Systematic theology is a good thing, 
But if that's all it is to you, is this thing to be studied and mastered, you're missing it. See, the Bible was never given to us to make us masters of the universe. It was given to us as an invitation to relationship. The Bible was God's self-revelation to us to invite us to know Him, to love Him, to know how much He loves us and delights in us and the price that He paid through the work of Jesus to reestablish His relationship with us. Yes, we should study the Bible. Yes, we should try to master the ideas of the Bible. But if we're missing our delight, we're missing the point. The Word of God is a tool that should be seen as an invitation back into relationship. So, so yeah, how do we go into the sanctuary? We, we enter the Word of God. We pray. We move into community. We serve others. Spiritual disciplines are important, not because they earn the favor of God, but because they renew our awareness of God's favor for us already in Christ. We, we, we learn to delight in Him. Let me put it this way. Um, there are times, some of you that have been married, you know that there are times in your marriage where you just grow kind of distant. You didn't necessarily do anything bad. <laughs> there was no necessarily no crisis, but, but there's this distance that grows in your relationship. And sometimes it can happen in friendships, right? Long-term friendships, generally. But, but there's this, just this lack of intimacy, this lack of closeness, right? And in a marriage, you, you really know it because it's like just glaring, right? When you, when you lack that emotional connectedness and you just not seem to enjoy each other that much. And, you know, there are times when, when, when you know, specific times in my life when, when Lauren and I were like that. And I'm like, all right, how do I fix this, right? Obviously, we're going like two weeks. We, all we've done is talk business and kids. I mean, we haven't spent any time actually enjoying each other. Um, her love language is service, so I'm going to go do the dishes, right? So I go to the kitchen. I'm going to fix the problem by doing the dishes. So I do the dishes. I clean the kitchen. I maybe even vacuum, right? Lauren gets home. Oh, hey, yeah. She doesn't even say anything, right? She probably notices, but she doesn't say anything. So what goes on in my heart at that point? I'm like, who are you not to notice? Who are you not to notice the sacrifice I've just made for you? I have performed for you. You owe me. You owe me affection, you owe me friendship. You owe me, I don't know, something. But there's still this emotional distance. I don't know what it is. I'm mad. So I close off, right? All right, the problem was never, here's the deal. You know what I didn't do, what I needed to do, which eventually get around to doing is actually taking her out for a cup of coffee <laughs> and sitting down with her across the table and looking at her and asking a question that I probably haven't asked in months. How are you? What's going on in your heart? I'm, I'm just busy taking the world. I'm busy working. She's, she's supposed to be working with me. We're, we're, you know. And in the middle of that, we're losing the intimacy. Here, this is what I want you to catch from this, you guys. Some of you need to go to a cup of coffee with God. You need to go back to that place. Stop performing for Him. Stop working for Him. Stop trying to get His attention. You already have it. Here's an even better biblical metaphor, because the Bible doesn't say, go have a cup of coffee with God. That was my bad metaphor. What, what the Bible says is, He's your Abba. Your Abba. That's the Hebrew word that children, small children would utter for their father. It was like daddy. First word that often they could speak, Abba. It spoke of intimacy and closeness. You want a better metaphor? Go climb into the lap of your Abba. Just go climb into the lap of your Abba. What, what, is, what does any good dad do when their kid climbs up into their lap and says, you know what, I'm dissatisfied. I'm hurting right now. 
I'm frustrated right now. People are being advanced and I'm not. I feel like I'm being left behind. What does any good dad do in that moment? He hugs his child. And he says to his child, I love you. I delight in you. And that's probably the most powerful thing that any Abba can say in that moment. Because it realigns the vision of the person who's suffering, right? You guys, you want to renew your delight for God? Catch this. It's not about working for God, performing for God. It's not about doing the right things at all the right times. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm, man, I'm going to get my Bible study going again. I'm going to start getting up at 6 a.m. for my devotionals. I'm going to get my spiritual life in order. I'm going to, yeah, whatever. You're just climbing back on the treadmill. You're going to get exhausted and fall off, right? You want to delight in God? What you need to do is renew your awareness of His delight in you. Do you want to realign your delighter <laughs> so you're being less attracted to the, the idols that are destroying your life and more attracted to the God who will actually change your life in very powerful, good ways? Renew, renew your awareness of His delight for you in Christ. Climb into His lap. That's what the Word of God is. It's an invitation to relationship. It's an invitation to come back into the presence of God and be honest and be broken. Asaph was at the beginning of a psalm. The whole first part of the psalm is him just venting, Right? And God says, I don't reject you, I don't alienate you, I invite you. I invite you. I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Verse 21, drop down to there. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. He's starting to realize that when he was angry at God about all that stuff, it wasn't God that was the problem. He was like a beast. Um, animals, bad news for some of you, animals are not like people. They don't feel the same way we do. Some of you are like, you don't know my dog. Okay, I don't know your dog, but animals are animals, okay? They're animals. They're driven by instinct, and, and yes, there are, yes, they're wonderful. They can lick you, and, and that makes you feel good. It's great, okay? But here's the deal. Animals don't respond like people. You can talk to them. They don't understand you. You notice that? Like you're having these deep conversations with your dog. I'm glad that's therapeutic for you. It's not helpful for the dog. They're not learning anything. What he's saying is that when I was walking in rebellion to God, when I was walking so filled with my discontentment, so full of my envy of others, so angry at you because you weren't giving me the life I thought I deserved, when I was in that place, I was like a beast to you. Do you catch there are times in your life when you are pleading with God to tell you things and the problem isn't with God? It's that you can't hear what He's saying. You have put your heart in a place where you are closed off to sanity, to reality, to an invitation that He's continually giving you. Asaph is realizing that. He's like, man... I was so angry at you, but I realize now I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I just couldn't hear you. Verse 23, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. I thought I was sliding down the hill, but you didn't leave. <laughs> I thought community is what saved me. It wasn't. It's just what you used to wake me up to your presence. 
You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me to glory. Catch this, you guys. Glory isn't a place. It's a condition. You, you lead me through the mess of life, as hard as it, and, and as messy as it can be, with your counsel, with your eye on me, but it's for the purpose of leading me to glory, changing me to become the person you've designed me to be. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is the clearest statement of sanity in the whole psalm. Whom have I in heaven but you? I mean, are there any other gods that can meet my need like God? Is there anything else in life that can satisfy me like God satisfies me? I was created in His image for relationship with Him. I was designed to need Him. Is there anything else that can meet that need in my life? There's, I have no other God in heaven but you. And because I'm freed of that, and because I can actually come into your delight, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. That doesn't mean he doesn't want anything on earth. It means that he no longer needs the things on earth to be God for him. He doesn't need that promotion. He doesn't need that accolade. He doesn't need that success. He doesn't need that relationship. He doesn't need those things because those things are no longer what defines him. Catch this, you guys. When we're centered on God, it frees us to enjoy the gifts of God in a way that we never could before. Because those gifts now are gifts and they're no longer God's. When we try to turn a gift into God, we destroy the gift because we look to it to meet needs that only God can meet. Whether it's a relationship or a performance or an accolade or success. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is an eternal perspective that, that God gives us that allows us ultimately to process the suffering. My, the flesh and my heart may fail. There, there's going to be hardship in life. There's going to be hurt. But my strength isn't in this life. My strength isn't in my def definition of success in this life. My strength is God. And He's my portion forever. And by the way, if God's your portion, which is a, a term of inheritance, that's a pretty good inheritance. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's a little bit more than just money. That's a little bit more than just a title. That's a little bit more than just having temporary success. If God is your portion, if He is your inheritance, if that's where He's taking you, transitioning you, transforming you into glory, that's a pretty good future. Verse 28, but for me, it's good to be near God because I have made the Lord God my refuge. In other words, He is my delight. He is my security. He's my safe place that I may tell all your works. You guys, here's the deal. If we are going to be free of the envy of our culture, if we are going to be free of being driven to hate others because of their success and beat ourselves up because of our apparent failure, if we are going to be free to actually go through this life in a way that our faith empowers us, we need to fight the right fight, and that is to realign our delight so that when we come into the presence of God, it renews our delight for Him because we sense His delight for us. And as we do that, we will be freed in radical, powerful ways that we could never achieve or perform on our own. All right, we are going to uh, go into a time of response. We're going to put some questions on the screen. Um, we're going to take our offering. If you're a guest with us, there's a worship response card in your bulletin. I'd like you to fill that out. Drop it in the basket when it comes around. We'd love to know you're here. If you have prayer requests, 
put them on there. We'd love to know. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Um, so drop those in the basket when they come around. I'm going to pray for us. We'll go into a time of response, and then we'll take communion in a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God. We thank you, Lord, that we can come boldly, honest like Asaph did. We can vent to you. We can complain to you. We can yell at you. Because we know, Lord, that your love for us and your acceptance of us is not based on our performance for you, but on Christ's performance in our place. Lord, I pray for my friends. I, I don't know what's going on in their lives right now. You do. I pray that your spirit in this moment would be active, stirring our hearts, to be honest. Lord, reveal to us what we delight in that's killing us. And Lord, you know how strong the flesh is in us, how deep our rebellion is rooted, how hard it is for us at times to turn for, to you for, for you to deliver us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength, <laughs> knowing that we're turning from the thing that's giving us death to the thing that's going to give us life. We're turning from a false delight to a true one. God, renew our affections. May we taste and see that you are good, and then through that taste, have our appetite for you inflamed for more. Father, I pray that you will wake us up.